0: Welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Renad Mansour. Renad is a senior research fellow, Middle East and North Africa program, and the program director of the Iraq Initiative at London's Chatham House. I've reached him in Baghdad to talk about his country 20 years on from the war that removed Saddam Hussein. Renad, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Bill.
0: Now, as we hit the uh, 20th anniversary of the 2003 Iraq War, it's this Sunday coming on the 19th of March, let me haul out that old cliche about lessons having been learned. Do you think the U.S. and the U.K. have learned any lessons from the catastrophic consequences of their decision to overthrow Saddam Hussein?
1: Well, I'm currently in Baghdad and and have been going around Iraq uh, for the last little bit. Um, And really, 20 years on, you think back to those promises of of democracy, those promises of rebuilding uh, a country that was already so affected by war, um, and you don't really see those promises ever having uh, turned into a reality. Um, And, you know, very clearly, you know, what those lessons are, as, as the UK and US certainly are now more invested in other arenas, looking to build states and to this idea that um, uh, you could fight for democracy um, in, in a way. Certainly there are lessons that we've seen from the Iraq war that we can get into. Um, the ones that jumped to my head, one, this is a very messy business and it cannot be a short term, quick win endeavor. Both the US, the UK and the allies thought that they could come into Iraq with you know massive force, the world's largest you know strongest army, and simply remove a regime, put another regime in, and you know put democracy on a piece of paper written, uh, and 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 things would just move smoothly from there. So I think the lesson there is that international state building and, and building democracies primarily through wars. Uh, isn't isn't as 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 easy as perhaps many thought uh, in, two, in you know on the eve of the war in 2003 20 years ago
0: you know you're in baghdad and i'm thinking about tony blair who to this day resolutely says no mistake was made how does that sit with you
1: i mean you know <laughs> i think it's it's uh it's not uh in touch with reality i mean if you look at what the initial agenda was, what the plan was for the war, it was this idea based on false intelligence that, that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, which later we found out that that wasn't the case. But okay, removing a dictator, which was you know, Tony Blair's big, his big thing, was democratizing Iraq will make the Middle East a safer place, will make the world a safer place. And that we're also not seeing. I mean, in the last 20 years, Iraq has seen a lot of violence, Again, I mean, you know, we all remember how a few thousand Salafi Jihadist ISIS soldiers took over a third of the country in 2014 and the violence that came from that. And, and even before that, the civil wars that have, have occurred. So we find that it's difficult for politicians maybe to, to come to terms with such colossal mistakes. And this is a colossal mistake. It's probably in, in our lifetime one of the biggest blunders in foreign policy. Uh, and, and it has con- it's had, had consequences on Iraqis. It's had consequences on the region. It's had consequences in of the de- in the democracies of the US and you, you know, those European countries. It's had consequences globally. So it is, I, it, it, you know, if, if, if someone like Tony Blair doesn't want to, you know, sit down and reflect, that's his, you know, that that that's his, it's up to him. But we just say the reality is different to what he's just been saying.
0: Yeah, and as you say, Iraqis continue to live with those consequences as to, you know, many other people in in the region. Uh, You know, and this accepted wisdom that it it was just a series of blunders that uh, the weapons of mass destruction weren't there. The allies just had no understanding of the complexity of sectarian and tribal loyalties that Saddam had held together through his Republic of Fear. Debathification went too far and so on and so forth. But that's not a narrative you entirely agree with. what do you think is is beyond that kind of simple? Oh, we made some mistakes, and let's move on. Narrative.
1: Well, I've been doing a lot of reflecting uh, and looking back. You know, looking at the Iraq War, not necessarily anymore as a current affairs piece, not just reading newspapers of what's happening, but as a history. Uh, now that it's twenty years, and beginning to sort of weave together some of the threads to try and understand how Iraq in the you know in twenty years has come to where it's the way it is. And you begin to see some of these mistakes and, and, and begin to try and make some sense of why that is the case. And so, so you know, some of the arguments that, that I uh, have been making is looking at, for example, the mistake of removing the military, right? If you think about the plan for Iraq after 2003, you had primarily this elite, these political parties that were in exile effectively. Uh, they weren't in Baghdad. They were either in, in Iran or in the Kurdistan region under the safe, UN safe haven, or in London in the US. So you had all of these leaders and groups that were now tasked with coming to Baghdad and somehow acquiring power in a country that many of them hadn't been to for decades. So, they, so how do you do that? Well, I mean, it's easier when you can just remove the old military and instead rely on your own paramilitary forces, right? And so the memory of Saddam and the memory of the Iraqi army led to that decision. Let's remove the military and let's just rely instead on our private access to these groups, which will always ensure that we have a spot at the table. The second point being, how do we design a system? How do we design a constituency and and represent and speak on behalf of people who we haven't really seen for decades. Well, if we can turn it into a system based on sort of, let's say, uh, ethnic or sectarian identities, then that makes sense because that's not regionally based. You know, you you, you can claim to speak on behalf of the Shia or the Sunnis without actually having spent time there. And so this ethno-sectarian system that immersed, that Iraqis now called the Hafizah, was a design to empower that elite, looking for tools of how they could speak on behalf of people they hadn't met. So, you know, they come back and they start using religious symbols. They even use clerics, you know, in 2005, Grand Ayatollah Ali Sistani even endorses the Shia uh, block. Uh, And the Kurds, of course, using nationalism to 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 rally their constituencies. So these constituencies, this sectarianism that emerges wasn't necessarily a mistake, but it was a consequence of creating a new politics in Iraq, one that was based on uh, identities. And the final big mistake that people look at is this debathification. Over 40,000 civil servants were just removed from their jobs Uh, and again, that, that changed the project from regime change to the complete destruction of the state, where you know all the ministries, all, all the human capital, the know-how was removed in one order by the CPA, the Coalition Provincial Authority, which the U.S. ran with advice from these Iraqi exiles. Now, that also seems, at the time, seemed like a big mistake. There was no logic to it. But if you think about it, again, these parties coming to Baghdad it would have empowered them more had they removed officials from the state, civil service from the state and put their own people there. Now, those people who they can insert in the senior civil service could start helping them gain access to Iraq's massive oil wealth. All of the contracts, all of the money and all of the ministries. I mean, we're talking about annual budgets that could go above a hundred billion dollars, you know, in a year. And so debathification seen from this slide, again, was the say you know was was also a tool that could empower this powerless elite coming to rule the country.
0: You know that's very interesting, or you not? Know, and, and and as you say, what an opportunity for these elites to move in. You clear the deck, and you put your own people in place. You create these private militias, the Hachashmi, and away you go.
1: Yeah, and 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 it, and it's not just the uh, Hajj al-Shaabi, it's if you look at how violence works in Iraq, every serious political party does have a private, you know, some kind of private access to arms so that, you know, the KDP and PUK have their, per, per, you know, their Peshmerga forces, which aren't necessarily linked to obviously not the Iraqi government, but also not to the Kurdistan regional Government. They represent the private interest of these parties uh, in the same way that the different groups in, in the Hajj al-Sha'abi are linked to the parties that, that they represent. And you know, when political parties emerge, when opposition parties have emerged since 2003, organic movements calling for reform, once they haven't been able to secure themselves or have access to violence, um, they haven't succeeded. And so violence, and having private access to violence is a negotiating tool for state power in this new Iraq. Mm.
0: Now, now look, at, at a recent Chatham House seminar, the phrase mutant state came up several times, which I was fascinated with. And uh, it kind of bounced back and forth between you and, and your fellow panelists, uh, Liloua al-Rashid and Hayat uh, Abdul-Ahad. But can you tell our listeners uh, what that phrase
1: mutant state means? Well, you know, I mean, when, when, the, when the Americans and the Brits came and, and, and promised regime change in 2003, uh, the image in their head was there would be this kind of, let's say, Weberian state, this neo-Weberian state, where power would be in the government, where the military would be the only uh, agent of violence, where you know there would be a clear rule of law and a clear disassociation between what is a formal sector and what is the informal sector between private companies and state companies between political parties and civil servants so the idea of a mutant state is a that this state doesn't quite fit the cookie cutter model of of of, of states that emerged let's say from 19th century europe and 20th century europe where you have you know, to, to quote the, the expression that's often used, the Weberian expression of monopoly over legitimate violence. So you don't really have that Weberian state. But if you look at what Iraq actually becomes, it's this patchwork of, you know, some of the laws that were left from the time of the Ba'at party or even previous governments. Then on top of that, new laws emerged. And so it becomes very difficult to navigate the complexities of, of of the legal regime, of the military regime, of the political regime, because you know those lines between formal and informal, between legal and illegal, are politicized and therefore blurred. And you have this—is it unique?
0: This mutant state. Is there anything else like
1: it anywhere else? I mean, there are of course specific characteristics to the Iraqi mutant state. I mean, it's defined by this oil rentierism. So most of its wealth uh comes from oil and 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 that makes the government still a very important uh arena that most parties want access to because then you get access to wealth but also you know if if you look at many other countries i mean we're talking about things like legality being blurred or formal informal being blurred i mean the same can certainly be said for 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 many countries around the world
0: Now, you also made the point at that seminar that Iraq is caught in the middle of this U.S.-Iran contestation with JCPOA 2.0, pretty well, DOA in Vienna. That situation is not going to go away anytime soon, is it?
1: Yeah, and, and you know, uh, this is where some of the the wider contradictions of, of the promise of state-building, democracy-building start to uh, reveal themselves. At times... You know, the Americans, for example, or, or, you know, or the Iranians or any external actors have viewed Iraq as a playground for wider battles. Right. So the U.S. has at times made disastrous decisions for Iraq, but in, in with in the eye of fighting Iran. The example being, for example, you know, the 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 killing of uh, Iranian General Qassem Soleimani in Baghdad, near you know, the in the airport. That was uh, uh, Iraq being used as a uh, as, as 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 a playground to fight Iran. Now the consequences will be borne by Iraqis because after that it became far more dangerous in. In, in, in Baghdad and in many parts of the country. And on the same hand, the Iranians too have, have, have been a, a, a huge influence, an interfering factor in Iraqi politics to spite and to go against the Americans uh, and, and supporting groups that go against the Americans. So the point here being that even though Iraq has been central to the policies of many of these countries, Iran, the US, the Gulf, it's been central insofar as it's a means to another end. And that becomes uh, a problem for trying to, for, for Iraqis in this country who are trying to build a state away from foreign interference and away from being a, a playground.
0: Yeah, that's, again, that's very interesting. And and, and the sense that, that Iraq is just caught and continues to be caught. And the strategic maneuvers of the Americans, of the Gulf states, of Iran, just, keep playing out to no reward that I can see for the Iraqi people.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and, and Iraqis feel it every day. Uh, many of them, you know, tell me they just wish, you know, that, that the world can stop uh, paying attention and interfering, that the region can stop interfering so they could try somehow to rebuild. Um, but they don't see uh, Iraq really becoming stable and 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 being able to fight the big issues of corruption, the big issues of 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 climate change, and all of these big demographic issues that are emerging, if it's still at the behest of bigger powers.
0: Now the Saudis and Iran have just renewed the diplomatic relations. The Chinese are taking credit for the rapprochement, but it's worth mentioning that both Iraq and Oman were also involved. Do you think um, this is going to help Iraq at all in terms of what we've just been discussing, trying to extricate from some of these uh, big power players using the country?
1: Well, certainly, a kind of regional cold war is never a good uh, thing for Iraq because, you know, as I mentioned, it's it's the playground where this war is has been fought. Um, so, diplomatic relations between any. Uh, neighboring countries is good for Iraq, and because of that, several Iraqi prime ministers, beginning with Haider Abadi, uh, but really being pushed further by Mustafa al-Kalbami, the previous prime minister, have tried to, you know, re- revamp Iraq's, you know, to some extent, historical, uh role as as a regional player, as a regional power. And Kalbami, as prime minister, began these summits in in, in Baghdad and uh, which have been, con- you know, which brought together Saudis, Iranians and other regional uh, leaders. And the new prime minister in, in Iraq, Mohammed al Sudani, ha- has expressed his commitment to continuing that. So the Iraqi government has realized uh, that some initiative is needed uh, to not be a playground, to not be reactive, some proactive Initiative to try and help heal and and, and help demilitarize and, and, and reduce the tensions. Ultimately, in the long term, is in the interests of of, of all countries in in the region, including Iraq.
0: Yeah, it's interesting too, as you say that that Iraq has been engaged in this process for now several years, and yet it's the Chinese, Xi Jinping, who's claiming credit for it. It seems a a bit unfair.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, it was never going to be. Iraq, uh, you know, it it was always going to be a superpower that really took the the, the stage. And even when Iraq was claiming credit for it, keep in mind that France's, uh, you know, Macron was a key international face that gave it some, uh, let's say, international uh, legitimacy. So certainly, I mean, I'm not sure of the details of, of, you know, how it went with with China and, and, and you know, Iran and, and Saudi Arabia but certainly it, it was always going to be a bigger power that that would on the show, on the front of it put its 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 face on this agreement
0: now you touched on mahasasa that which has created a deep deep state of corruption it remains resilient it's very well entrenched you know that's not going to change anytime soon either is it
1: no because you know if we go back to the logic of the state if we go back to you know the logic of creating corruption and the logic of creating this new Iraq after, you know, 20 years ago, its primary purpose was to empower this elite. And what muhassassah does, what this ethno-sectarian system does, is it, you know, it, it not only gives the elite ideological authority in a country where they were strangers, having been away for so long, but it also gives them access to wealth. And so the question becomes, if a system wasn't really designed to serve the people, it was designed to serve this elite, who was going to be in charge of changing it? The elite, of course, will not be interested in changing it because they benefit from it. And the people have tried to change it, Uh, most notably in October, 2019 uh, in in, in these movements that became known as the Tishreen movement, Many Iraqis, young Iraqis, recognizing that their future uh, was bleak, um, protested. They occupied squares in Baghdad, in, in, in other parts of southern Iraq and central Iraq, calling not for the end of a specific party or against a specific leader, but calling for an end to Mahasasa, calling for an end to that system. And there was hope that maybe a system could be put in place that actually had the voices of people in them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because keep in mind, this new Iraq, there wasn't town, there weren't town halls, there weren't, people weren't really genuinely asked what system they wanted, the system was put on them. And 2019 was them saying, it's time for our voice. But of course, what we've seen since is, you know, the elite confronted with a threat to the system, have doubled down on it, and have doubled down by using violence. Uh, over, you know, five, six hundred protesters were killed in the first few months of of, of Chishrin, and you know, tens of thousands wounded. And since then, it's become a lot scarier for many uh, civil society organizations, many you know, social leaders who are activists to try and practice their democratic right of um, protest or activism. Uh, and instead, they fear violent backlashes, whether being jailed, or being killed, uh, or, or or being kidnapped. And so, it, you know, 20 years on, Iraq is a, scary, is, is a scary place right now for many who call for an end to the system. And the system has therefore proven its uh, resilience once again.
0: Yeah, and still lurking is Nuri al-Maliki, the prime minister from 2006 to 2014. And, and just to remind our listeners, uh, in Maliki's second term following disputed election, he secured the backing of then then US Vice President Joe Biden, and he proceeded to embark on an anti Sunni campaign that saw the military purged of Sunni officers and campaigns of violence conducted against Sunni civilians. And his efforts uh, helped clearly to enable the stunning success of ISIS in 2014. Does Nouri al Maliki remain a uh, power player or what
1: do you think is a spent force no he's certainly a, a power player having been the longest serving prime minister at a time when you know coming in as the first real prime minister following the first election he was able to develop what many call a deep state uh, and much of that is is still intact of course, having left office in 2014, he lost some influence, but he maintains influence across the Iraqi state, um, and remains a powerful player. You know, his when he was prime minister, what he really wanted to do was to centralize power and become. The strongman, but that didn't work because the system isn't designed that way. The system is designed as an elite bargain where everyone takes a share of the pie. And so, you know, obviously he's a very ambitious Iraqi official who wants to become a strongman, but it's hard to see him ever getting to that point. But certainly he is one of the strongest elite in the elite bargain that defines uh, this new Iraqi system since 2003.
0: So we definitely should not count Nuri
1: al-Maliki out. No, definitely not.
0: Now, now finally, uh, Lunad, you and your fellow panelists at the Chatham House seminar, I referred to all prominent Iraqis, said the same thing, that solutions must come from within Iraq, from involving the Iraqi people in making the state work on their behalf. You know, and I I agree wholeheartedly with you, but I struggle to see how that can happen. So I'm going to ask you, Renard, put you on the spot. How can that happen?
1: I mean, it's difficult. It's certainly difficult. Hundreds, you know, hundreds of billions have been spent trying to rebuild. A lot of these international actors uh, in aid organizations, development organizations have sat in the green zone. Uh, not allowed to meet mo- most Iraqis with massive budgets of millions in and 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 try to fix the government and try to help reform the system at the local and national level. And this just hasn't worked, right? I mean, I think it's a unanimous decision that uh aid and development in, in Iraq hasn't really led to sustainable successes. You could build a school, for example, and many have been built, or hospital, but sustaining it is another story and and many of those initiatives and all of that money spent hasn't led to bettering the lives of many iraqis and so the question then becomes you know why is it not sustainable and it's because it hasn't really had it hasn't been an organic part of uh, the iraqi society right it's been designed in a green zone and developed sort of outside of of the confines of, of of society and so what needs to happen really is, is Iraqis need to have more of a say. Iraqis need to be empowered, their interests need to be looked after. But of course, these are big (laughs) uh, initiatives and big points that I raised. And it's difficult to see how that even begins. I think that protests and activism and civil societies even though they're facing immense violence, you have a lot of brave Iraqis, especially this young generation. And keep in mind that the demographics of Iraq will continue to be the main pressure force against the system. I mean, Iraq has one of the, has one of the largest uh, growth population growth rates in the region. Its population is about, to, it will soon double from the 2003 population, two thirds of Iraqis or almost two thirds of Iraqis are under the age of 25. So you have this youth population, this just generation that isn't benefiting as much uh, or, or, or you know, as, as involved in, in, in the system as the older generation. And this Generation will continue to pressure, will continue to, to fight in different ways for democracy and for better, you know, basic services for dignity, as they say. And the key will have to be how best to foster what they want uh, and, and, and their pressure in a way that could hold to account the government and all of the government, not, you know, I think the one big lesson in Iraq since 2003 is there are no good guys and bad guys in the elite. There's just the elite, and then there's the rest of society. And here, internationals do have a role because some of this, these, elite, these, these elites are allies. And so supporting personalities instead of institutions has been a downfall. And the key then has to be how to develop Iraqi government institutions that could foster the pressure that the many of these 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 uh, activists and, and and protesters and so organizations are looking to exert how can there how can one ensure accountability across the state that has to be the you know the the, the ultimate goal Yeah
0: big big challenges and as you say enormous courage already uh, the, the Tushreen movement hundreds of killed and, and tens of thousands injured um, but that youth, a youth demographic will keep pushing and 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 you quite rightly point out there is an obligation on the part of the international community not to support personalities but to support structures and systems of governance that work for the Iraqi people
1: that's right. That's right. And, and, and uh, it might not be easy because, of course, you, ha- you know, internationals have their own diplomatic protocols and there are other political motivations that aren't just about Iraq, as, as we've discussed. Uh, but that has to be the key. Uh, accountability and institution building rather than playing personality politics and hoping that good guys can defeat bad guys because they're, you know, on the ground for many Iraqis. They all look like bad guys. They all are bad guys.
0: Renad, thank
1: you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Bill.
0: You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was Renad Mansour. Renad is a Senior Research Fellow Middle East and North Africa Program and the Project Director of the Iraq Initiative at London's Chatham House. Since we launched our podcast less than three years ago, it's been listened to more than 125,000 times in countries right around the world. So, uh, Big thanks to all our listeners, and if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I hope you're enjoying the podcasts, which we bring you with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice with a donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our daily newsletter and how to get a free trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, contributors like Renad. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening, from independent sources.